Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. You have to remember these chapters uh, that we're going to be studying have three parts to them, especially chapter 2, and that's why we're spending a lot more on chapter 2, because they're going to show the same thing in chapters 4 through 8, where we have God's accusation to a guilty people, and then from that accusation, God moves into a judgment period. So because God accuses them, God also will judge the people and even though it's a judgment, it is temporary. But then after that judgment comes a start of reconciliation. So there's three parts to, to, these, um, to these chapters that we're going to be studying in the future. And this one too. So we're on the third part of this one in chapter 2, which is a reconciliation moment. How many of you guys love fresh starts? If you could raise your hand, fresh starts are good. As a matter of fact... We're going to be doing a fresh start next week. I mean, it's the beginning of the year of 2019, and everyone's goals are going to be put to, to the test. Everyone wants to start new. Everyone says, I'm going to budget this year. I'm going to spend less money. I'm going to get married this year. Whatever the goals may be, there's kind of this, this kind of feeling of like, well, all of this stuff will get left behind, and I will move forward into 2019 with a new perspective and although that lasts only several weeks, it's a good feeling to have a fresh start. Or if you're into sports, you come home from a long game and you're sweaty and you stink and then you take this cold shower and you're just fresh and you smell good and people actually want to get around you. It's this, it's this concept and feeling of being fresh. And the more I look at the book of Hosea, the more we can appreciate who God is. And although God is just and faithful to accuse us and bring judgment on us, God also wants to restore us. And I see this even more when we read verses like the following. I'm only going to focus on verses 14 through 17, but the greater portion of this is from verses 14 through verse 23. Today we only have time to do the first three verses. So let's read those. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. And here is, I want you to pay attention to the wording. I'm reading from the ESV once again. And it says, therefore, remember, whenever you see in the Bible that word therefore, always look back. What is he talking about? What's going on here? So, Therefore, you go back to verse 13, at the end of verse 13 it says, And I will punish her for the feast days of Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. That's verse 13. So, based off that, what did she do? She went after her lovers, and what else did she do? She forgot who God was. And so then now, in verse 14, here's the surprise. Therefore, 
based off what we just read in verse 13, behold, I will allure her and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. So we'll stop right there. So after reading verse 13, what do we anticipate? We anticipate once more a sense of judgment. Well, they forgot me. She forgot me. Israel forgot me. If you're in the husband stance, my woman has forgotten me. And so therefore, we should return that favor with negativity, right? We should return that with even more punishment. If God already punished her in verses 8 through 13, we should continue that punishment because it looks like nothing has gotten any better. And worse, the one thing that she was supposed to do, which was to remember God, she has forgotten and she has no longer done. And so at this verse conjunction in verse 14, there should be this sense of even more anger from God. But God says, therefore, I will allure her. I will chase after her. I will persuade her. Here you have the husband imagery going after his wife. And that's why the imagery is so powerful, once again. That's why the metaphor is so powerful, once again, because you have this husband who has, been cheat, who has been cheated on time and time again, and he still chases after this woman. And we've mentioned this before, but I want, you to, I want it to really uh, sink in because we're talking about a fresh start that God provides. She has done so much evil in her past. Her, her past and even her present is, is full of disgrace and evil. And yet we have this husband, or we have God, still chasing after her. Now in the natural world, even in my case as a pastor, where we've said this before, our first uh, if, 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 if a couple comes to counseling, and I've had several counselings throughout the year where the wife or the husband, they just, they're at that, their wit's end. They have nowhere else to go. They want to separate. They want to divorce. She wants to, she, she usually says, or he, they usually say, I can't take it anymore. I've come to my end and let him go his way and she'll go her way, and, and we're good. We'll just be at peace like that. We want a divorce. We want to separate. So we never really fall on that position where we're like, well, okay, if you guys, if you guys stop loving each other, well, then okay, go your way, and everyone live in peace. We don't advocate for divorce uh, on immediacy. There's no, like, sense for us to be like, come on, yeah, divorce or divorce, or even though she's cheated or they've been unfaithful, there's still alternatives, and God can still rescue the marriage. But, but there comes a point of time where push comes to shove. And if I was counseling Hosea, which I don't think I'd have the capability to do so, but if I was counseling this man of God in my natural state, 
As a pastor, I would say, Hosea, look, man, you've been patient. You have been merciful. You have, you have shown grace. And though you've been strong and, and you have brought judgment upon her, you know, she's been cheating on you consistently. And it's not just one time. And it hasn't just been two times. And it hasn't just been three times. I think that to me and my natural state, at, after the third time, I'd be like, look, bro, it's happened three times. You know, just leave. <laughs> like, that's enough, man. Leave her alone. You're a man of God. You're the, you're the prophet, Hosea. You are God's mouthpiece. It's time to move on. God has something better for you. There is another woman out there that will remain faithful to you. Don't worry about it. You're a man of God. Chase after another woman. But leave this girl alone. Just leave her alone. She's never going to change. I think that would be my natural inclination after the third time. However, I'm not God, and I don't have God's inclinations. And this man is still chasing after this woman. And the imagery shifts from husband to wife to God and Israel. Can you, can you picture that? Full of sin. People that have gone far away from God. People that have not only turned their back on God, but what we learned in chapter 1, they have turned their back on God, and the sin that they did, they understood. By me sinning in this way, I am moving further away from God. So purposely, Israel was moving further and further away. This, is, this, this picture is gruesome. And it's, it's telling us the nature of our God by showing grace to her. And, and we, we ask ourselves, God, why would you do such a thing? Why would you still chase after such people that want nothing to do with you? What's the point? Why don't you just start over, which is our natural inclination? Yet God demonstrates love and compassion by still remembering his covenant and still saying he loves them. You know, when God was in this relationship and he really understood his covenant, this covenant of commitment when you stand before somebody you say, till death do us part, that was real. That is real. And God was faithful. And so it says, therefore, God goes and persuades her. The ESV says he will allure her. He will talk to her in a, such a way where he'll try to persuade her to come back. And this, to us, is surprising, especially after what she's done. What's interesting about this word allure is that it also means deceive. It's not only persuasive or, or, or alluring, but it can also mean deception. So the reason why I mention that is because you have to understand the power of this word. There are, just to give you a brief grammar class, there are certain verbs in the Hebrew 
that are a little bit more gentle than other verbs. And that's true in the English. For instance, if I say, I am hitting, hitting this desk, you guys will see that I'm hitting this pulpit. But if I say, I am destroying this, this pulpit, I will physically be destroying it and I'm tearing it to pieces. It's a stronger verb, right? So in this sense, this alluring isn't a soft alluring or persuasion, but it is a hard intensified uh, concept and action of even to that point of deception that you're trying to win back. Obviously, God is not deceiving anybody at this point, but it's a stronger form of chasing after someone. And you ask yourself, God, you are chasing after people that no longer want you. Leave them alone. But God still pursues and God still allures them to come. And this intensified verb also brings with it some implications. God is chasing them and persuading them and alluring them to come back to him because they have the tendency to want to return. Or in this case, they, they don't want to return to God. Can you imagine that? You're chasing after somebody that doesn't like you. If you even come into our 21st century and you remember your high school years, if you guys are old enough or young enough to remember your high school years, I went to high school 15 years ago or 20 years ago, and I'm like, wow, 20 years ago. But you remember your high school years and you remember that boy or girl that you liked and you, and you wanted to, to take out on a date, but she wanted nothing to do with you? And you would chase after her, and she's just like, leave me alone. I don't like you. But there was persistence, and there were sometimes guys that were so persistent. But the girl doesn't want him. And so you get this feeling of, of is God desperate? Is there desperation in God? Now, that would be a negative way of putting it, wouldn't it? Wouldn't, it? wouldn't that mean that God is desperate for somebody? Or is our God desperate for, this, for these people? Well, that's not the case. What God is doing is wanting to return the people into the relationship where the people will be all satisfied. When God made a commitment to his people, he committed himself to being their protector, to being their guider, to being their, their only lover. Outside of God, these people would perish. You got to put it this way. 21st century, you look at Europe and you look at the Middle East and you see this nation called Israel. It's at the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. It still exists. Israel, they're called Jewish people. Maybe some of you guys know some Jewish people. But ask yourselves, how many Moabites do you know? Ask yourselves, how many Philistines do you know? Ask yourselves, how many Assyrians do you know? Do you see any Assyrians that have 7-Elevens or, or grocery stores around here? Or business owners? We don't. We only see Israelites. God has been faithful to Israel since he, it's the beginning. You guys remember what happened in World War II, right? Hitler 
and the annihilation of six million Jews or so, and you remember how much hatred uh, Germany had towards Jews, and still God kept them. And you say, well, what, why, didn't, why wasn't God with them in the Holocaust? Well, those, that's, a different, that's a different teaching. What I want to teach you guys is, is that even through the most difficult times of the Jewish people, God has still been faithful, and they are still around. Why aren't these other people around? It's only Israel. And so God brings Israel and protects Israel, and he pursues Israel so she can stay with him because with him she has everything she needs. But they have this tendency to go back to their evil ways. If in verse 15, you'll, we'll read later on, but it makes a reference to Egypt. It makes a reference from them coming out of Egypt. And you have to ask yourselves, why is this reference there? Well, pr- one of the main reasons it's there is because he's pursuing them and he knows that Israel has this tendency to go back, to want to go back to the old ways. And you remember that when Israel came out of Egypt, one of the first things that they did was want to go back. They were afraid and they were hungry and they told Moses, we should have stayed in Egypt. At least we would have died with a full belly. Israel has always had this tendency to return back to her slavery. And God's always telling her, come this way. You don't need to be in that moment. You don't need to be in that situation. You don't need to be enslaved. And God's telling her, pursuing her, and persuading her to come back. But she has this tendency to leave him. But still, God brings her. Where does God bring her? If you keep reading verse 14, he says, Therefore, I will allure her and bring her into where? The wilderness, the desert. And there I will speak tenderly to her. What does this mean that he brings her to the wilderness or to the desert? Well, it has, it has two sets of, of understandings here. It's a future uh, moment when Israel will spend time in the physical desert being in exile because they were going to be kicked out of their land. They're going to be taken away from their, from their location. This is going to happen with the Assyrians. This is going to happen with the Babylonians. They're going to be sent off in exile. But still, what God is going to do in the desert is so much more important than them just suffering in the desert. What is he going to do there? What does the wilderness mean and why is God taking this woman to the wilderness? Why is God taking Israel to the wilderness, to this desert place? Well, the wilderness often is a symbol of judgment. I mean, think about it. The wilderness, there's no life. There is, it's, it's nasty. You can die in the desert. There's no water. There's nowhere for you to go. But God is bringing her to this place. What does this mean? It's a, it's a judgment period. Is this more judgment? I thought this was going to be the happy ending to the story. Well, in the wilderness, God's going to turn the wilderness or the desert into salvation. It's a symbol of the first stage of marriage. Now, for all of those who are married or who are happily married, I I, I want to make that a clear distinction. If you are happily married, you will return 
immediately, if I were to ask you, think about the first year of marriage. Now, for all the young people here that aren't married, you guys are like, uh, <laughs> I don't really care. I'm never going to get married anyways. I'm going to live young and free and, and die reckless. But, but for those who are married, you think about the first year of marriage and everything's new and it's just wonderful. Uh, in our case, we, we had no kids. We enjoyed to sleep. Now we have no sleep because of our 15 kids that we have, but, but we, we, in, we enjoyed our company. People enjoy their moments. It's their first love. They're getting to know each other. They're, they're going to the movie. They're going out on dates. They're, they're just having a blast. It's this notion of the beginning. It's a beautiful start. It's this wonderful moment in the marriage where, where the problems don't seem to be yet, right? I mean, the problems will come. But at, but at the beginning of the first year of marriage, it's kind of like, oh, I still love you. Oh, don't worry. Oh, everyone's kissy-kissy. And they're, and they're tagging each other on Facebook, and it gets all mushy and nasty like that. But anyways, it's the first year of marriage, and it's a beautiful setting. And so God is bringing her. He's alluring this, this people, these people. He's alluring them to come to the desert for what? To show them judgment? Well, not in this case. He is showing them salvation in the desert because it was in the desert where they understood who he was in the beginning. This is interesting. When, when God takes the people out of Egypt from the very beginning, and you, you read this in Exodus, you read that in Exodus he takes them out of Egypt. How does he save them? He, he saves them by bringing plagues on, on, on Egypt. And I, you guys all know that story, right? The Pharaoh and, and, and Moses. And maybe some of you guys are familiarized with it by a Bible story that you learned in Sunday school. And you guys are like, was that really real? Is that just a story? Well, that's real because it's in the Bible. And that happened. And so God brings the plagues and he takes uh, the people out of Egypt. And then what happens? They, they, they encounter this big red sea. And now Israel is stuck and the Egyptians are chasing after them. And Israel's like, oh my goodness, we are going to die. We are we're going to stay here and we're going to die here away from our homes, away from our, our, our people. We're going to die in the desert. And what does God do? God opens up the Red Sea, right? You guys saw, at least most of you guys saw that, that movie of Moses. And, and you guys, and you see Israel cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then the Egyptians follow after them in their chariots. And then what happens? The Red Sea closes in and all the chariots and all the Egyptians drown. And what happens? They're free. They're completely free. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. God rescued his people. And as soon as God did that, God takes, if you read this, in, uh, you can read this in Exodus chapter 13. God takes them into a desert. Now, why does God do that? Immediately, as soon as they, 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 they uh, escape the Egyptians and God opens up the, the Red Sea, they should be in the promised land. They should be uh, in, in a victory land. But God says, no, I'm going to take you into a desert. And this is done purposely because God is, what is he doing? He's full of love and he's full of grace. He takes them into the wilderness. And what does he do in the wilderness? He stops them from confronting a Philistine army. If they had kept going straight, they would be confronted by a Philistine army that would have demolished them, or at least morally demolished them. So God takes them to a wilderness so that they avoid that confrontation. So it's in the wilderness that God provides safety. It's in the wilderness that the people of Israel are led by the pillar of fire and the cloud. 
God's present with his people in the wilderness. And, and it's in the wilderness, if you read the beginnings of Exodus chapter 15, that Moses and the people of Israel, for the first time, sing to God. You know what we did a little while ago? We were all praising God. We were clapping and we were singing. And, and Israel demonstrated why they praised, why they sung. Why did they sing? Well, because God rescued them. Why were they so happy? Why were they clapping so loud? Why were they singing so much? Because God had finished rescuing them. I mean, think about it. You're running away from the Egyptians. You're, you're faced with a body of water, and you're like, we are going to drown. They're going to kill us. The Egyptians are bad people. The Egyptians are going to scalp us. They're going to they're gonna, uh, make us worse slaves. They're going to make us the, the worst people ever. I mean, think about it. You're like running, and they're right behind you. And you're like, oh my God, that's it. We're done. We see this water. I can't swim. There's no life jackets. There's no lifeguards here. It's it. It's over. And what does God do? Whoosh. Opens up the water and he says, go. So you go. And you're running. You're like, I can't believe I'm running. And look at all this water. And you look back and there's the, the Egyptians. They're still coming after you. You're like, oh my goodness, let me run faster. And you're running, you're running. And you get to the other side. And then you turn around and you see the Egyptians coming. You're like, goodness, they're right behind us. And then what do you see? The water close up. And you're like, dang, man, God, you are legit. Like, dang, you are real. Like, that just happened right now. And what do you do? What's the first thing that you do? You say, thank you. You rescued me. We were about to die. There was no other option. There was nowhere else to go. You made the way. If it wasn't for you, we would have drowned and we would have died at the hands of the Egyptians. But you made the way. You, you allowed me to cross on the other side. And so my first response to God is what? Thank you. Praise. We worship you because of where we were. What was about to happen to us. The dire, desperate situation that we were in, you made a way. And so Egypt in a sense, pushes the Israelites to experience their first and one of their most highest expressions of praise. And I tell you this, that the highest expressions of praise are usually when we realize our dire situation. The worst moments that we experience provide the greatest Levels of praise because we realize that we couldn't have done it without God. Without God making the way and God leading the way. But unfortunately, there's always an unfortunate with Israel, right? It's like, man, they were, they were doing so well. This was like the beginning of their journey. They're praising God. They wrote a song. You read, the, you read Moses' song, and then Miriam, his sister, sings another song, and it's like, man, these people are, are amazing. They're singing to God. But unfortunately, that song of praise didn't last very long. As soon as a little bit of trouble came their way, they began to grumble and complain against God. Sounds familiar, right? When God did something good for Israel, what happened? Woo! Tambourines, 
dancing music, the beat goes on, where everyone is joining, and thank you, God, man, you just got me through the most difficult moment in my life. Hallelujah. I'm going to church that Sunday. Shoot, I'm going. My friend's been inviting me to church on Sunday for the past five years, and I've never gone to church. I'm going to go to church this Sunday because of what God just did. Like, he, he provided a job. I have no high school diploma. I have no, no GED. I have no college degree, and still I got this $50,000 a year job that I landed some way, somehow. That's only God. And what do you do? Woo, I'm coming to church. I'm going to go praise God. But then the difficulty comes, comes into the life when you're like, ah, forget God. And that's exactly what Israel did. Their song of praise only lasted very little. They sang because of what God did, but they grumbled because of their bad decisions. If God was going to rescue them from, if God rescued them from the hands of Egypt, do you think God would not have fed his people? Why were they grumbling? Because they were hungry. Why were they upset with God? Picture this. God just did the most amazing miracle up until that point. And, and these people are upset because they're not, they don't know what they're going to eat. Like, dude, God just literally opened up the sea, and you think God's not going to feed you? And you think God's going to let you die? Like, do you remember what just happened? And they're like, oh, we're upset, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're going to die, and forget God, we should have gotten back. And that just proves time and time and again who the people are, the, the, the limits of our, of our personalities, the limits of our, of our physical bodies, and the greatness of our God. God provides great miracles, and yet our feeble minds do not understand his answers. God does amazing works, and yet when a little bit of problem comes our way, we forget about everything God has done. And so that's why our problems are so big. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is the worst. I'm in the worst situation. And you're like, dude, do you not remember what God just did? Do you not remember where God brought you from? Do you not remember the greatness of God? And most of us are like, oh, yeah, but, but this looks really bad. And so our praise turns into complaining and grumbling. God is bringing Hosea, Hosea is bringing his girl, God is bringing Israel into this wilderness because he's reminding them of that first song. He's reminding them of that first situation of praise. The wilderness was going to be a symbol not only of judgment, but of future hope and salvation. This is something that the prophet Ezekiel was going to say. You could read this later on in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 35 through 38. Listen to what the prophet says. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Now, that's the beginning part of it. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. What's he doing? He's bringing them, he's returning them into that relationship. It's a fresh start. And then in verse 38 says, I will purge out the rebels from among you, 
and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God brings them into the wilderness for the purpose of knowing who he is. Israel knew who God was in the wilderness right after Egypt. And so what God is doing in Hosea is alluring, persuading this, these people that have put their back against God, and he's persuading them to come back to that moment where they met God face to face, and they knew who he was. So God brings her back. Not only does God do that, but God also comforts her. So we have several things going on here. We have God loving by persuading his people. God is bringing his people back to the wilderness. And then when he brings her to the wilderness, he will comfort his people. This is why this reconciliation, this fresh start, this new beginning is found in the depths of God's love. He's comforting his people. How do we know that? If you read back in verse 14, it says, I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. Now this language is, is a type of language used between a husband and a wife. It is used in the literal sense, it says, I will speak to her heart. I don't know how many women here have felt their husband speak to their heart lately. Don't ask my wife. But that literal notion of speaking to her heart that makes her melt. How many husbands have the power to make their wives' hearts melt? God is speaking tenderly. This phrase is a very interesting phrase because it's only found eight times in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew construction. And it's found in, in some occasions when a powerful person is bringing someone to trust them who is vulnerable or who is suffering. So when they speak tenderly to them, he, they're bringing them from their suffering and from their vulnerability. But it's also found in the concept of people being in a dangerous situation and the pe person in power speaking tenderly to them to bring them out of that dangerous situation. So it's, it has this notion of, of, of loving because of their desperate situation and loving because of their dangerous situation that without that love, they're going to be annihilated. And so God is speaking to her tenderly because he's comforting her from their dire situation. What situation is Israel in at this moment? Israel is in the worst moment or worse situation of their lives because they are separated from God. Israel has forgotten her God. That's the worst. There's no worse than that. Can you imagine, in, in Hosea's case, can you imagine that his wife that he has been married to for 10 plus years, she has forgotten completely about him. She doesn't know who he is. Can you imagine being married and your wife doesn't know who you are? That's the worst situation you could be in. And that's Hosea. He's standing there, and his wife is over there messing around with all these men, 
And he's looking at her, and she has no idea who he is. She forgot her vows. She has forgotten everything about him. And he's still speaking tenderly to her. Now, this isn't seductive, nasty stuff that he's talking, like dirty stuff that our 21st century ears are used to talk. When, when we see a guy talking to a girl like, hey, babe, like, uh, are, are you, you know, I, I can't even come up with a, with a line <laughs> that, that's, that's PG for this, for this environment. So it's not that nasty talk. It's alluring. It's trying to bring her back, saying, babe, come back. Those guys don't love you. Those people don't love you. They're using you. Babe, come back. You're safer with me. That's what God is doing to his people. That's what we see Hosea doing for his wife, and his wife doesn't even know who he is. And you're like, Hosea, wake up. But that's, that's what God wants to prove to us. That's what God wants to show us, that in the worst situations, while, while the people, while the person, while we are at our worst, God is chasing after us because we're his. That's how God keeps his people. That's why it's important to understand that you are a son and daughter of God. That's why it's a must that you need to learn that in God's hands you are in the best environment and that's where God wants to keep you but not only is God doing that what does he do he comforts her and then he gives first God loves now God gives remember what we read in the beginning of the of chapter two what was God doing God was taking God was removing his gifts God was leaving her naked but now we see God giving look at verse 15 and there, where is there? The desert. And there I will give her her vineyards. Where is he going to give her her vineyards? In the desert. In the wilderness. He will give her. This is God giving her vineyards. And now you're, you're saying, well, again, what? What is this vineyard? Remember, if you go back to chapter 2 in, the, in, in verses 8 through, through 13, we read and we studied that the vineyards were a sign of prosperity. It was what Israel was chasing their gods for. She was looking to, to be fertile and have fruitful lands and have many uh, grapes for wine. All of this was part of her prosperity, and God took it away from her. But now we see God loving her, and because he loves her, he gives her and restores her vineyards. But, but I want you to pay attention to this. Where, where is God giving her her vineyards? Where is he giving her her vineyards? Where? In the desert. Once again, where is God giving her her vineyards? In the desert. Does that register? The desert is a sterile place. There's no life in the desert. Yet this, this terminology, this, this picture that God is doing is, is bringing her to that place of judgment, which is the desert, and God is turning the desert into a place of hope by showing us that even in the worst, sterile, lifeless environment that she is in, God 
will give her life. God gives life in sterile environments. That's a picture of all of our life. We were all lifeless and dead without God, and God brought us to life. That's why you're here. Some reason, some way or another, you heard about God and there's something that you just came to church today. You're here because God spoke life into you, even in your worst situation, even in your worst circumstance, even in the desert of your life, which, is, which was lifeless and no hope. God restores her vineyard. And you're like, God, 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 these people don't even want you. God, they forgot about you. God, they don't even know your name, God. You're not, they don't even know Yahweh anymore. And God's like, I'm giving her her vineyards. Because she was chasing after these vineyards with other gods, I'm going to remind her that I'm the one that gives them to her. He gives her vineyards for fertility. He, he gives it to her in the desert because God is faithful to his This is, my friends, this is what's so big about God again. We all come back down to this main point that we ask ourselves, why is God doing this? The reason he's doing it is not because we are good or it's not because we're just so attractive that God wants his people so desperately. It's that he said that he will keep them and because he said that he will keep them, he is faithful to that covenant. When everyone else would be like, man, forget it. I said it, yeah, but you know what? You pushed me too far. Forget you. What happens when, when a friend backstabs you? Uh, backstab me once, that's it. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool, or however that goes. <laughs> I just did a George Bush. Well, however that goes, you get backstabbed and you're like, Phew. Forget you, I'm never, you, I am deleting you from my Facebook right now. I'm blocking you from Instagram. I'm, I'm taking you off Snapchat, however that works. And, and I'm, I'm just forget you, don't ever talk to me again. Uh-uh, I'm not going to be made the fool no more. Uh-uh, get away, get out of my life. You try to take my man, no way. Mm-mm. And, and you put, get put, and God is completely different. God is, God is, I'm giving you. I'm going to love you even more. I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to make your desert a place of life. And it goes even further. Where does he take her? To the wilderness. To the valley of Accor. And then here's where he puts that contrast. In the valley of Accor, he will provide a door of hope. Now what is the valley of Accor? Valley of Accor is very important because it's obviously mentioned here for a reason. So what, what, what God wants us to know is not only where he's going to give her this wonderful gift, where he's going to bring fruitfulness from her. He doesn't want us just to know what the desert implied at the beginning by, by the, the first time that he knew, that she knew who God was and that he's going to provide her with gifts there. He wants us to know what the valley of Accor is. What does this desert and this valley mean? Well, immediately we can understand what the valley of Accor means because the name Accor equals or is the Hebrew word for trouble. 
So you can translate it like this, the valley of trouble. Now you guys understand what that means. You guys know what certain locations mean by what they're called, right? When, or even by how they are alluded to. So for instance, if we were to say, yeah, he's from, he's from Compton in L.A. Like, ooh, Compton. Oh, he's from 26th Street. Oh, that dude's dangerous. Or, or like when I would tell my, like when I go to school and I tell my friends, yeah, I'm from Cicero. Oh, Al Capone. Oh, oh, politics. Bad politics over there. Wow. And, and, and so they know what that place means by the name of it. And so the wilderness where she is found is in the valley of Accor, and it means the valley of trouble. This is where the famous story of Akan in Joshua, where he steals what he's not supposed to steal, and because he steals, he brings Accor, or he brings trouble over his people. 36 people die because Akan stole from God, and they brought trouble upon his people. And so they took him out to the valley, and they stoned him to death at the valley of Accor because it was the place of trouble. It was a place of death. It was a place of lifelessness. And here's the big contrast. In that lifelessness, God will provide a door of hope. In the place of trouble, God will make a way. In the place of hopelessness, God provides hope, and he will lead his people through. Do his people deserve it? Nope. Do his people want it? Doesn't look like they want it, but God still gives it. And that is who our God is. So I thought I was going to get through verse 17, but I got through verse 15 today. So next week, we'll continue with this joy and this restoration. So we didn't end on a negative note today. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We ended on a positive note where God provides his people gifts even though his people do not want them. So let's get up on our feet. And I hope this is a lesson for us all that we don't keep living in the desert wanting gifts from others, but God is the one that provides them. So let's pray. We honor you today, O oh Heavenly Father, because we want to make sure that we know who you are. And though our lives have somehow, at some times, managed to forget about you and have set you aside, we're here to let you know you have persuaded us. You have allured us, and you have given all of us here life, and we praise you for that life. Father, return that joy of salvation once more in our lives so that our praise can be so much more significant when we are before you. We put all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.